The two-star head of Strategic Air Command's operations is there. Our deputy ambassador to the United Kingdom is there. The head of MI5 and MI6 is there. Uh, a number of uh, British military individuals are there. So we go through the briefing. Uh, they had no idea if we had a problem where we should land. They said, that's up to you to try to figure out. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to episode 27 of Cold War Conversations in association with the Cold War Museum. Today we are talking about the SR-71 Blackbird spy plane. Only 32 Blackbirds were ever made and they were in service from 1964 to 1998. The great defensive ability of the plane was its high speed and altitude. Standard evasive action was just to accelerate, which made it almost invulnerable to the attack technologies of the time. The top speed of the plane was Mach 3.3, that's 2,200 miles an hour to you, which equates to 36 miles a minute. Now before we start, I'd like to thank all of those who are supporting the podcast with monthly pledges and donations. It is much appreciated and will allow us to expand the scope of the podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast further and get access to some exclusive extras, go to our website at coldwarconversations.com and click on the support the podcast menu option. Back to today's episode. Our guest knows a bit about the SR-71. Buzz Carpenter accrued 777 hours flying SR-71 planes. He flew Blackbirds as an aircraft commander and later as an instructor pilot with over 60 operational missions. He also flew in the C-141, the RF-4C, and T-38 planes, flying 150 combat hours in Vietnam. He worked in the Pentagon and served as wing commander at Ramstein Air Base in Germany during operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm. He retired as a colonel after serving as the second Air Force vice commander, responsible for all the US Air Force intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance flying assets. He is currently a docent for the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum Udvar Hazy Center. We welcome Buzz Carpenter. Buzz, can we start by you telling us how the SR-71 came about? The SR-71 basically came about on the uh, 4th of July, 1956, the U-2 was the first airplane built specifically for reconnaissance. And they thought Kelly Johnson, the Skunk Works, the CIA, and they'd briefed the president that if we could put an airplane up at 70,000 feet, that the Soviets would never see it. So on the 4th of July, 
1956, it flew over some of the eastern satellites. On the 5th of July, 1956, the first U-2 flies over Moscow, and they see in the film, well, surface-to-air two missile sites being deployed around Moscow. And on that flight, it's readily apparent that the Russians are tracking the U-2 at 70,000 feet, which we didn't think they could see up there. Right. So after some analysis, they come back to the president and they say, this is the problem. The U-2 is vulnerable, but we don't have an alternative because there's no satellites yet. And the Soviet Union is a closed society. How many bombers are they building? You know, are they into missiles? All these questions that uh, were obviously at the forefront of uh, President Eisenhower. He uh, commissions a group to study and try to come back with alternatives. In 1957, they come back and they've said, we've looked at the space programs, they're not ready. We think you need a replacement program and we need an, a replacement airplane. And not one that flies at 450 miles an hour as the U-2 does, but at 2,150, Mach 3 plus. Not at 70,000 feet, at 85,000 feet and above. And President Eisenhower's number one priority was to create America's first stealthy airplane. I mean, he was clear. I want an airplane that Khrushchev can't see. Because if he can ever shoot down one of these airplanes, he could consider it an act of war that we've been overflying his country. So with that, they, they kick off a competition. And Convair is one of the competitors and Lockheed is the other. So in 1958, that starts. 1959, Lockheed is selected. In August, a contract is signed. And they will build. The first contract is to build 12 of the single-seat A-12 airplanes, which will be the predecessor to the SR-71. So it'll be developed in secrecy. It will be a final assembly. It will take out at Area 51. That's where it's tested at. And its first flight is in April 1962. And that's one of the amazing things. You think about it. From the time that the contract was signed until first flight, was only 32 months. Yeah. You yeah. think about today's standards, we look at years and years and years from when we start an airplane until we finally, one, fly it, and then successfully employ it as a uh, weapon system. Yeah. I understand that the aircraft was quite revolutionary in terms of its construction. Yes, and, that, and we can attest that to probably one of the great geniuses of the 20th century, Kelly Johnson had a way that when you gave him the requirement, as President Eisenhower had done, he realized he was in a whole new environment. If you're going to fly at those kind of speeds, the structure of the vehicle is going to heat up. So it became readily apparent that they couldn't use aluminum because even using slide rules, they could figure out that the temperature of the airplane was probably going to be somewhere between 550 and 600 degrees average. So they had to use titanium. And 93% of the SR-71 is titanium. One of the big challenges with that, the United States doesn't have titanium. So Russia 
We bought all the titanium we needed for these airplanes, eventually 50, from the Soviet Union, and they never knew what the titanium was for. All they wanted was the money. Uh, so now you're dealing with a metal that we had not really used before. Today, titanium is very commonly used, but think about late 50s and 60s, it was an all-new metal. And it's a wonderful metal, but it has some unusual characteristics. When you go through the milling and manufacturing of it uh, to make sh to get it to do what you want it to do, because it it can easily fracture if it's done incorrectly, because it is susceptible to uh, metals like cadmium and and other metals like that that causes it to become embrittled. It, it's interesting and and really funny that the metal used in the majority of the construction of this aircraft was sourced from the country that it was probably going to be most directly used against. That's exactly right. How did they manage to disguise where it was going to end up? I mean, did the Russians just think it was going to be used for, I don't know, scientific equipment? Or do you have any insight as to how they managed to, you know, trick them in that way? All I know is that the CIA set up frontal companies in Europe and came up with some reason, non-military, on how they were going to use this titanium, and that's all the Russians knew. Uh, also to the genius of Kelly, if you look at the airplane, uh, to be able to fly at 85,000 feet, and at those kind of speeds, you needed some new shapes. So the forebody, from where the wing joins the body, when you're at, at 3.2 Mach, 35% of the lift of the airplane comes off the body of the airplane, that forward body there. So it is the world's first lifting body per se. And I mentioned about the heating. The airplane grows three to four inches in length and an inch or two in width, and that's why it's loosely put together. And it's a very low G airplane. If you can imagine when we're cruising and the airplane is fully heated up, which is fully heated up by the time we get to altitude and speed, we can only pull 1.7 Gs. That's a 45-degree bank turn. So uh, the airplane, you had to fly it. It was a wonderful airplane to fly, but you had to fly it very carefully because it had some very distinctive limits. Yeah, I've seen the SR-71 at Duxford in the UK. Yes. Um, which I believe is the only one outside of the US. That's correct. And it is a phenomenal looking machine. I mean, it just doesn't look like any other, <laughs> any other aircraft. We, well, you know, I'm a docent at the Air Space Museum, the Smithsonian here in Washington. And I'm sure it's the same thing in, in the UK. But we have young boys and girls come in there and adults and they look at the airplane. And when you tell them this was designed in the 50s and flown in the early 60s, they can't believe it. Because it looks like something, if you look at it today, could could have just come off a production line. I mean, it, it almost looks alien, which, you know. It does. The, the whole uh, Area 51 thing comes up, but let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Uh, um, so how did you get recruited into, into the SR-71 program if you were on the, uh, the Phantoms? I met a then Colonel Jerry O'Malley when I was going through uh, Phantom training. And I would work for him. He was the vice wing commander in Saigon. 
and then he was the vice wing commander up at Udorn. And he flew the first operational mission in an SR-71 that was out of Okinawa, Japan in March of 1968. And he approached me and he said, you know, I'm going to go back to the States and I'm going to become the commanders, the commander of the SR-71s. And you're the kind of guy that I think we really want in the program, but you're way too young. You don't have enough flying time. They wanted us to have about 2,000 hours, preferably in two airplanes. And, and clearly they wanted us uh, to have had air refueling experience. So I left them from uh, Thailand. I went to uh, the RF-4 unit in Okinawa, Japan, which happens to be just like Mildenhall was in the UK. Okinawa Kadena Air Base was the location of the SR-71 operations out of the Far East. So I would continue to fly RF-4s, but I kept in contact. I put in my volunteer statement. You had to fill out this volunteer statement. You had to send them your personnel record, your physical record, and your flight records. They would do an evaluation, see if it was worthwhile to bring you back, and then you had a week-long evaluation. It was a two-day mod modified astronaut's physical. You had a series of interviews. As a pilot, I had to fly in the companion trainer with current SR pilots, and they would evaluate what they thought of my flying skills. Uh, they would also put you in the simulator, not to fly it supersonically, but just to see how you... Uh, how quickly you learn things as we were instructing you in the simulator. So I kept in contact with uh, Colonel O'Malley, and uh, there were no promises. And he basically, he was not there when I was hired. His successor actually hired me. And the, the words he left was, if uh, Buzz meets all your qualifications and there's an opening, uh, I would recommend you hire him. And so I was hired and I reported into Beale Air Force Base in Northern California with my family to start training in July of 1975. How different was the training from the Phantom training? Oh, completely different. It was the first computer simulator I'd ever seen. The, it, we didn't have a visual display, but the simulator actually flew like the airplane. I mean, we couldn't simulate refueling, but if you if you were in the simulator flying it by yourself, which my navigator and I, before we even started training, used to go there, down there at night when nobody was using the simulator, the simulator could detect that you had done something that would cause a problem in the airplane, and it would reward you negatively for what you had done. I mean, the, the fidelity was something I'd never seen before. So when you come into the program, the SR was so complex that your first two months was just all academics, learning about the systems because they were so different than other things that we'd ever been around. Uh, one of the great uh, parts of the system was the fact our navigation system was an astro tracker that had come from the United Kingdom. And we basically, it was this master computer on the airplane. When I take kids around, I kid them. I said, you know, we have R2-D2 like in Star Wars on this airplane because that was our master computer that knew where the targets were. And, and 
was told exactly where we were in the face of the earth. And when we pulled out of the hangar on a sunny day, the sensor that was on the back of the airplane underneath the glass looked through the blue sky as if it were not there and locked on the stars within about two minutes. And we guaranteed our president 300 feet anywhere in the world traveling at 2,200 miles an hour. So we were not dependent on ground navigation. We navigated off the stars and there was no way to jam it because there was nothing in between us at 85,000 feet and that very dark sky above us with the stars. Well, Buzz, I'm always pleased to hear about a British engineering success. So uh... It was a great system, which is still being used today on the B-2. Really? Wow. Yes. I'm presuming that navigation is not via GPS now, like car navigation, is it? No, a lot of it is. But they're concerned about the GPS. You know, both the Russians and the Chinese and others are developing uh, jammers or yeah. spoofers yeah. that cause you to think you're one place because it's it's corrupted the signal that your receiver's uh, supposedly receiving from that GPS satellite and causing you to uh, go off track and expose yourself to uh, possible uh, attack. Yeah, and, and even the Russians can't move the stars. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> and what, yeah. what, what can you tell me about some of your missions? Most of them... Most of our, our flights, including our missions, were two and a half to four and a half hours. That's either one refueling or two refuelings. And in between those refuelings, you'd go over three, you could go over 3,000 miles. But every two hours, you had to come down from altitude to 25,000 feet, either to hook up behind a tanker and take on another load, typically around 10 or 11,000 gallons of fuel, or from 25,000 feet, be in a position to contact air traffic control and be going into a landing either from your home base or to a base that you were intended to, uh, to land at. Um, longer missions. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. I flew some longer missions. The longest missions in the airplane were in the 1973 war, and uh Part of that was driven by the fact that none of the European countries would allow us to fly SR-71s out of their area into the Arabian Peninsula and then back because they were afraid of an oil embargo. So 95% of the pictures that our president and the military used to 
determine what was happening in that war came from SR-71 photography because the satellites were all in the wrong positions and it's very difficult to move a satellite. So consequently, the way that war had occurred, by the time you could have moved the satellites, it would have been too late. Now, some of the missions that I flew, there were probably, uh, I flew 67 operational missions. I ended up with uh, about 777 hours, probably 220 to 240 actual flights. Uh, I've never counted the exact number. I came over in 77 as a fairly young pilot because uh, the decision was made to try to experience all our crews. There had been a time that only our experienced crews sp uh, flew the new missions. And so you know what happened every year, a couple of the experienced crew would go off to another assignment and the experience went out the door. So the decision was made to share the load. So while I was over in England, in uh, 1977, and I think it was in the spring, everybody tells me that I probably flew the first operational mission over West Germany. And what was kind of interesting about that was we took off out of Mildenhall, and the British air traffic control were wonderful in clearing the way for us. And then we would uh, refuel out over the North Sea, and then we'd start a climbing and accelerating, and you'd be doing a large sweeping turn and then you would enter Germany west of Hamburg, basically heading due south. But because of how small West Germany was, think about it, mm. we couldn't fly at the higher speed. So we had to fly at 2.8 Mach. And when we swung down and would swing around Munich and try to point our cameras into the eastern satellite countries, we would have to use 45 degrees of bank. And that was the maximum bank angle that uh, we could use because of the G limits. And it was really a pretty sporty mission to be able to keep the airplane under control, steady for the cameras and inside the boundary of West Germany. You then swing to the west and turn north and kind of go back out on almost the same track that you'd come in at. And then you'd turn out over the North Sea, call into Northern Radar in the UK, and then start your uh, descent and recovery back into Mildenhall. Right. We had a similar type of profile. I never flew it, but when we went up into the Baltic, we had the same problem. When you went into the Baltic, when you got up there, there I think it was Latvia, and started your turn, you had to be at 2.8 Mach, because otherwise you would overfly uh, Sweden, or uh, probably not Finland, but overfly Sweden, which was a neutral country. So we had to fly those missions at a slower slower pace, per se. We would also fly out of England. Um, an interesting mission for us, and I flew uh, this a couple times, was we same kind of departure. We'd refuel over the uh, North Sea, but then we'd head all the way up the coast of Norway. And then north of the Arctic Circle, we would come down and refuel again and then climb back up, and then we would cruise along the north coast of, of Russia and go up the Zimia Peninsula, which if you know where Archangel is in Murmansk, yeah. go further east, we'd go up there, we would do kind of a 180-degree a, a turn, come back down. And when we flew those missions, by this time we developed, because 
the country's camera, the, the camera in the nose, and I'll talk about later my, my mission for the president into the Middle East, each picture is 72 miles wide. So that's 36 miles either side of the center of the airplane. Well, we never overflew Russia. So if you're respecting their international boundary 12, 12 miles off the coast, you effectively can only look in about 20 miles. But once we developed synthetic aperture radar, that was a radar in the nose, not as clear. I mean, you, you, it was one foot resolution, but like with a camera, if you were out in the parking lot of wherever you're at right now, mm-hmm. and I flew over at 85,000 feet at 2,150 miles an hour, and you're holding a sheet of paper standing beside your car, when we processed the film, I would see you holding the sheet of paper. I can't read any writing, and I would see you beside your car. I can't recognize your face because the cameras even today have a problem with that. But most of the time I could tell you what kind of a car you were driving and I could identify you as an adult male. That's the kind of resolution we had with our optical cameras. But with the radar, we now had the advantage we could look 100 miles in. So now we're 12 miles international boundary line. We can look in 88 miles. So we can do a survey of the uh, Murmask uh, submarine pins to see who's home. <laughs> we can look at other airfields or things like that that before we had to depend on a satellite because obviously we were not in the business of overflights. Yeah. So typically we do that big turn, Zimia Peninsula, come back around. At the northern part of Norway, there'd be another set of tankers for us. We'd refuel. And that would get us back to uh, the United Kingdom. That mission, I think, was about five and a half hours. It may have been six hours. It was in that range. And did, did the Soviets try and intercept those missions? They most certainly did. And we could see their contrails because uh, when you're in a jet, and our, we did the same thing, when you're coming up through the colder upper air, 55 to 65,000 feet typically, uh, you'll leave a contrail. Matter of fact, if it's really cold air, um, I've flown a mission off the north coast of Russia there in the middle of winter when the the normal outside temperature would have been minus 55 degrees centigrade. That's kind of a standard you learn in class. And this particular day, we were reading minus 90, and uh, we were leaving a contrail. Matter of fact, the the Ironic thing is, as we turned, went up the peninsula, came back down around, we flew through our own contrails <laughs> because the the ice and the contrails were still slowly, because there's not much wind uh, at that altitude. It's not uh, yeah. the predominant thing, per se. And could the Soviets um, reach that altitude or, or not? No. The um, MiG-25 could get up to probably 75,000 feet. The MiG-25 actually could get up to Mach 3, but he burned up his engines. But the other thing was, once he passed 2.7 Mach, 2.8 Mach, because of the skin heating on the airplane, he had basically effectively destroyed his missiles. They were no longer any good because they had overheated, so the electronics and that wouldn't work. And once he got up to that speed and altitude, he could only be there for about five 
eight or 10 minutes. And then he was heading back. And when he landed, they basically had to replace the engines because they had been overtemped and they were not repairable. But they still tried to get out. Oh, yeah. No, no, they would still come up. They, yeah. We would regularly see them. Uh, we'd sometimes see MiG 23s. Um, they had less capability. Foxbat at that time was the real uh, contender. Now, later on in the 80s, the Foxbat was replaced by the MiG 29. Mm-hmm. Um, the MiG 29 was a more capable airplane. Um, how long it could stay, if it could even get to Mach 3, which I think it could, but I don't think it had any much more endurance than the uh, MiG 25 did. What were your instructions if you had a malfunction and you came down? Because, I mean, being even 12 miles off the coast, potentially if you had to bail out, you could end up landing on Soviet territory, I guess. That's true. We would try to steer away as best we could. Um, Fortunately, it never happened. The only one that was an ejection over the water was in the Sea of of the Philippines, and it was it had nothing to do with a combat uh, issue. It had to do with an engine that the turbine blades failed mm. um, as they were approaching the target area. And they were trying to get to an air base in, in the Philippines uh, before they lost uh, all the hydraulic uh, fluid they had. And the airplane just went out of control, so they had to eject. Um, and the fishing boats from the Philippines, they were right off the coast of the Philippines. Some fishing boats picked them up, and eventually the airplane ended up in 200 feet of water, and the Navy had to come up and raise it. One of the more, more probably one of the most interesting missions I flew was in March of 1979, and I sent you the thing. Mm-hmm. And we always had three crews and three airplanes at Kadena, Okinawa, Japan, and we would periodically have an airplane. I don't remember we ever had two airplanes at Mildenhall with two crews to deal with the European uh, targeting issues. But that was periodic. We'd go over there for a month to six weeks. Uh, I remember we went over uh, for a series of uh, flights, and we stayed for the Queen's uh, Silver Jubilee. They had a big two-day air show at Mildenhall, and I think Prince Philip came up to that. I don't think the Queen did, but the Prince Philip came up to it. It was quite the thing. Almost all the European uh, uh, flight demonstration teams performed. And of course, the Red Arrows put on an absolutely magnificent show. But this is March. Um, all of a sudden, we get an indication that um, there's some trouble. We don't know where it is, though, initially. And um, my backseater and I, my navigator, we were at a gathering on a, Friday, a Saturday night, and the head of our operations says, uh, come into the uh, vault tomorrow um, around noontime, and we there's some maps you need to look at. So we knew that something was coming. Well, I got a call at seven o'clock in the morning. Said, get your get your navigator now and get down here. These these maps have to be reviewed. So we got down there and we saw Middle East, uh, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and some others were in a in a conflict. So. It was pretty, became very apparent within an hour or so, you guys are going to Europe. And and when we did the map survey, we weren't sure we were going to be selected to be one of the two crews to go over. So the senior crew was the one that was going to fly the airplane over, 
John and I were going to go over in a tanker and get on the ground and meet them with the uh, the arcing or the special radio as they came in. So the operation proceeded pretty quickly. We took off from California at six o'clock on Sunday night, um, stopped in uh, New England to refuel, and then over to uh, the UK. Got there about 15 minutes before the SR arrived to be able to get it on the ground. This mission, because the French would not allow us to overfly, would have been a seven and a half hour for refueling because we had to go around Spain and Portugal. It became a nine hour and 45 minute mission. And uh, so the senior crew said, we really don't like the longer flights. So we brought the airplane over. It was supposed to be three missions into the Middle East. Why don't you fly the first one? We'll fly the second one. You fly the third one, and then we'll take the airplane home. And what that do did, would it would give us all about the same amount of flying time in the airplane. Mm. So we said, sure, we were the junior crew. So it took a couple days for our tankers to pick up the fuel they needed and get to their location. Some of the tankers were in um, Marone, which is in Sevilla in Spain, a huge base there. And then there were two sets of, or there were sets of tankers that went into Cairo and they were, but you know, our tankers look like any other tankers. So people don't get, there's no special markings on them. The difference is that they had a special center line fuel tank that carried our special fuel. So that when we refueled, we weren't burning JP4, we were burning JP7. And the difference between that is that JP4 ignites at minus 40 degrees. And so you use electric ignition as in normal airplanes that you and I fly on. Mm -hmm. JP7, because the airplane's so hot, we want an airplane uh, fuel that's very stable. So JP7 does not ignite until you get it above about 335 degrees. So to start the SR engines, you don't use electric because it doesn't work. Use a chemical ignition. And when you start the engine and you Hit the start point at about 1,000 RPM, a shot of triethylene boring, we call it TIB. And when it hits the air, it explodes at 3,000 degrees and very nicely lights the fuel. Once the fuel is lit, it burns wonderfully. And every time we light the afterburners, another shot of that fluid, TIB, is ejected into the afterburner section to make sure you get a nice clean light on this raw fuel that's now being ejected into the afterburner section. And as we burn the fuel down, because of how hot the airplane is, we carry on the airplane doers of liquid nitrogen. And so as the fuel is burned down, gaseous nitrogen is put into the tanks to prevent auto detonation. So now we get the tankers where they're supposed to be. We have a, a briefing like about two in the morning. Uh, the two-star head of Strategic Air Command's operations is there. Our deputy ambassador to the United Kingdom is there. The head of MI5 and MI6 is there. Uh, a number of uh, British military individuals are there. So we go through the briefing, talk about what the Middle East looks like. Uh, they had no idea if we had a problem where we should land. They said, that's up to you to try to figure out. Uh, if you have a problem. So my navigator and I had kind of figured out what we'd have to do. 
everything's in order. We come out. We're supposed to start the engines at four in the morning because that'll put us over the Middle East at the right sun angle that we wanted because this big country's camera is on the nose, the one that takes the picture 72 miles wide. Mm -hmm. And we're going to film a swath in. And in, a, in an hour time period, we can film 100,000 square miles. So we're going to take a wide swath down through southern Saudi Arabia over Yemen and around and come back up where we know that the armies are kind of formed and some of the conflict is taking place. At the 4 o'clock in the morning, all of a sudden they come up the ladder, uh, dust storms, sandstorms in the Middle East, 24-hour slip. The next night, same thing happens. The third night, they finally come up and say, it's a go. So we start engines. We take off. We hit our first set of tankers off Land's End. So they refuel us. We then fly around. The next set of tankers is in the Mediterranean. Our third set of tankers is north of Cairo, out in the Mediterranean, in the Red Sea, into the Red Sea. We then fly the operational part of it. Another set of tankers refueled, refuels us over the Red Sea into the Mediterranean, and then we fly. And then the way it was laid out, it was kind of awkward. So the next refueling is a little difficult in the sense that I have to stay behind the tanker for about 45 minutes because what they want is the right amount of fuel at the right point. And the only way to do that is basically to stay behind the tanker to that point. And then once I launch and go back and uh, cruise, then I can come back around through the Straits of Gibraltar up into England, have enough fuel reserve, and then land back at Mildenhall. And once we land there, then the cameras and the recorders, because there were electronic recorders recording the, the surface-to-air missile radars and communications and other stuff, is then loaded into a waiting airplane, flown across the Atlantic, processed in Washington, D.C., and then delivered to the president. What made this really an unusual mission on top of a number of things is President Carter is going to monitor the whole flight. We normally ran radio silent, but this particular mission, at the end of each refueling, even though the tanker's going to give a report, and even though they're tracking us by other means, we break radio silence and basically acknowledge everything is okay, we're proceeding. And so that was for President Carter to know that, in fact, the mission, that's what we were told, was proceeding on course. Um, once they evaluated the film back in Washington, it was determined we didn't need a second mission. So the senior crew never flew an operational mission on this particular deployment. And even to this day, they kind of kid me. You were the junior crew. We brought the airplane over for you. You flew the mission for the president. And then we had to fly it back home. And I said, yeah, you didn't want to fly the longer mission. So, <laughs> you know, it's funny how sometimes things like that work out. It appears to be unusual for the president to be so closely involved in a SR-71 mission. President Carter was just a very interesting individual, Ian. That's all I can say. Uh, the first two years of his presidency, we did not do any overflights. He felt that it's immoral to overfly other countries without their permission. Mm -hmm. 
And after two years and the Soviets had moved all kinds of equipment into Cuba and other things were happening around the world, uh, we went the other way. So we started overflying. We had regular overflights of Cuba. We had uh, we never overflew China or or Russia or uh, yeah. Soviet Union. That was part of Eisenhower's, I guess, agreement with Khrushchev because he basically put out an elect executive order, which, to my, best of my knowledge, is still in place today, that said we will not overfly these two communist uh, countries. Um, in a manned vehicle, obviously, yeah. we're going to continue yeah. to collect information with the satellites and, and other means, yeah. but not with a manned right. vehicle. But I think Russia's um, now signed up to the open skies. They have. Treaty, uh, matter of fact, I think they're doing an update, uh, getting a more modern airplane and maybe some more modern sensors. Because uh, um, the open skies has been an, on an off deal. Yeah. Uh, my navigator, who was John Murphy, who was with me for four years, just a magnificent uh, navigator, magnificent uh, person per se. He and I were tasked to go to Diego Garcia uh, to help set up for future SR-71 operations. So we went down there and worked because it's a British protectorate, worked with the British command there and worked because it was a Navy facility to um, prepare the runway. Uh, it was in terrible shape. And when I say terrible shape, it was good for Navy airplanes, but the SR tires are inflated to 425 PSI in nitrogen. And so nails sticking up in the runway may not affect a, a, a P3 airplane, but a highly inflated tire of an SR could easily be, become blown. So we had to clean that up. There was no place to park or store an SR. So believe it or not, one of the hangars, hangarettes, at Beale Air Force Base in Northern California was disassembled, loaded into a C-5, flown across the Pacific into the Indian Ocean to Diego Garcia. And the civil engineers um, basically resurrected or built the, put the hangar back together there. And uh, so I'm one of two pilots that were operationally planned to go into Deo Garcia. There were some long missions flown in the 80s. Um, and why they came from Kadena, I don't know exactly the reasoning, but they flew all the way across Thailand, across the Indian Ocean, up, and then up through the Straits of Hormuz. And basically, they were surveying Iran trying to find where the sticks, missiles, and some of those other things that were threatening the oil shipments in that area. And those missions were also over 11 hours. And one or more of those airplanes may have had to make a divert into Diego Garcia. I don't know that for sure. That was after I was in the program. But um, I did... Uh, in 19, the spring of 1981, uh, take an SR-71 from uh, Okinawa. We, we basically flew down the coast of Vietnam uh, photographing and uh, picking up sensors, but then flew into Deo Garcia and stayed there a couple of days and then turned around. And one of the um, ironic things I'll tell you about, I told you that the magnificent Star Tracker we had, there was a northern set of 
catalog with 58 stars and a southern catalog with 58 stars. Well, if you think about it, almost every mission we flew in the SR-71 was in the northern hemisphere. Mm-hmm. So in this particular mission, going to De Garcia, uh, I don't know if it was the mission planners or the loaders forgot it was four and a half degrees south. <laughs> so as we're entering the Indian Ocean and as we're approaching the equator, all of a sudden we're not getting any navigation, and which was highly unusual because our navigation mm-hmm. system was really good. And so my navigator and I started talking about you know, what was causing this because the starlight went away. So we weren't tracking the stars. And so when we landed in De Garcia, we mentioned, they asked, how would the airplane go? And said, well, we lost navigation right around the equator and looked over at one of our tech reps, a civilian said, what star catalog did you load? And all of a sudden they realized (laughs) that they had never put in the the Southern star catalog. So, Once we crossed, we're in the equator area, I didn't recognize any stars. Yeah. And the ironic thing is, is that when we left, they didn't have a star, the Southern Star catalog. So they said, okay, we think if you take off, climb to altitude, get a good heading off of Deo Garcia, dead reckoning, that if you fly about 800 miles, and as you approach the equator, we think that it'll pick up the stars again and navigate you back to Japan. <laughs> which it did wow wow i mean but you it, must have done quite quite well to find diego garcia if you're um astro we, had navigation. Tac, we had tac in we had tac in on board so our tac in had a pretty good range because of the altitude yeah you know uh, okay. most airplanes flying at let's say 25 to thirty-five thousand feet or so they can pick up a tac in signal i would say out to 150, sometimes almost uh, maybe approaching 200. Well, when you're at 85,000 feet, your line of sight is so much further. Mm. You know, it's 300 yeah. and some miles line of sight. We could pick up the tack can further out. So uh, I wasn't that concerned we were going to miss the island. Yeah. <laughs> I, d- I read somewhere about the, the SR-71 being used to send messages to uh, heads of state. It was. They, you could not control your shockwave. So there was a sonic boom, and it comes off two places on the SR from the nose and from the wing. So it's a boom, boom. Uh, we called it the sound of freedom. It's about 45 seconds behind us. So the SR at times was tasked to overfly heads of state when they were greeting each other uh, on the tarmac because that's a very – I was a wing commander at Ramstein. Uh, in the early 90s, and we had many heads of state, President George Bush and Chancellor Cole and others that came in. And so a ceremony is, is preset at 11 o'clock. Air Force One opens the door. The president starts heading down. The chancellor meets him at the bottom of the ladder. They exchange some words or whatever. Well, other countries are, are the same way. And what, they, what we would do is just time the passage so that um, you would boom these uh, heads of state to remind them they were doing things counter to U.S. or NATO policy. I know that an SR flew over Noriega's house in Panama the three days prior to what would have been the invasion of Panama to encourage him to leave, you know, leave peacefully, 
let's not have an invasion. The greatest sonic boom that we probably ever set up was May 1972. Three SR-71s, the first two took off 10 minutes apart, the next one an hour later, crisscrossed over Hanoi and set up this horrendous sonic boom for the POWs. Now, as far as the crews knew, the whole purpose of this mission was to send a message say, guys, we really care. The war is probably going to come to an end pretty soon. You know, keep the faith per se. And they flew the mission twice, uh, about two or three days apart. Now, fast forward. That's May of 72. Two years ago, the Smithsonian released a... Um, a short documentary, it's about 50 minutes long, was called The Secret Spies of the Hanoi Hilton. And it got my attention. I said, now what, what the heck is this? And what really got my attention is that the trailer showed SR-71's crisscrossing. And so I watched it and, and it was part, it, it just goes to show you when you're part of classified operations, you're only cleared for the part that you're playing in it. Very few people get the overall big picture. Well, it turns out they've been able to smuggle, and I have no idea how, a radio or some communication into the Hanoi Hilton. Admiral Stocksdale, they set up this idea that they would try to have the POWs escape, and they were gonna have Navy SEAL teams at the base of the river that comes down from Hanoi and he was told that everything will be in place if you want to, for the operation to go forward when you hear the sound from the heavens. President Nixon approved it. The SEAL teams were in place. The SR-71s were the signal. And so they, by crossing, were the sounds from the heaven. Now, Admiral Stocksdale decided that since we're Westerners, we're considerably taller than the North Vietnamese. We don't look like the North Vietnamese. And most of the escapes attempts that had taken place before ended up with either the person getting killed or severely beaten or other things. So the decision was made not to attempt the escape. At that point, of the six crew members who flew those missions twice, there were five of them alive. So I sent them a message in saying, this is what you were really doing that day. You were sending a message to the POWs on a possible escape attempt. Uh -huh. uh, we weren't just laying a sonic boom for, for their morale. And I've talked to the POWs, but I've talked to a number of them, and they clearly had knew it was a sonic boom. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said uh, it scared the guards because they had never heard a, a sonic boom that intense. intense. And it's you know very different than yeah. a bomb. Yeah. Uh, so some of them actually fled because they had no idea what it was. That's it for part one of our interview with Buzz Carpenter. Our second part will contain details of his Vietnam War experience, working with the Soviets after the end of the Cold War, and much more. Our show notes contain a number of interesting links to information on the SR-71, as well as Buzz himself. Our show notes are at coldwarconversations.com. 
just click on the episodes and show notes option on the homepage and scroll down. If you like what you are listening to, do join our vibrant Facebook discussion group where there's loads of Cold War information and further discussions with our guests. Just search Cold War Conversations on Facebook. Lastly, do leave reviews with your podcast provider. It really helps to spread the word. Thank you very much for listening and supporting the podcast. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.